Yeah, Boanerges. Boanerges. Sons of Thunder, that's what Jesus called John and his brother, is it James? Zebedee brothers? Yeah. Nikki, you want to run those scripts over? They're right there, those two. Thanks. Welcome to the Mad River Anthology. I'm John Brugaletta. And I'm Rachel Wheeler. Today's program is Verses, His and Hers, or Verses, Hers and His. <laughs> Rachel and I uh, thought we would do a program of poems by male and female poets, pairs of poems, one by a man, the other by a woman. Uh, pretty much on the same subject, seeing how different and how similar the poems are coming from either sex. And so um, we're not saying that the sexes are altogether different. We know that people are different individually, but uh, there tend to be maybe some differences that are more pronounced than others and, and more common than others. Just as a kind of starting point, uh, we thought we'd begin with a couple of poems from, the, from 19th century American poets on trains, railroad trains. Trains, by the way, were not very popular when they first came out. That is, uh, they were noisy, they were dirty, they were big and scary, and uh, as a result, um, these two poets, Walt Whitman and Emily Dickinson, wrote poems about them that for some reason made them seem more friendly and so probably contributed to their popularity. Rachel, would you like to begin with Dickinson's first? Sure. Emily Dickinson. I like to see it lap the miles and lick the valleys up and stop to feed itself at tanks, and then prodigious step around a pile of mountains, and supercilious peer in shanties by the sides of roads, and then a quarry pair to fit its sides and crawl between, complaining all the while in horrid hooting stanza, then chase itself downhill, and neigh like Boanerges, then punctual as a star, stop, docile and omnipotent, at its own stable door. Okay. Shall I go ahead with Whitman, or do yeah, you want to Yeah, let's hear the contrast. Come? Okay. Or not. To a locomotive in winter. Thee for my recitative. Thee in the driving storm, even as now, the snow, the winter day declining. Thee in thy panoply, thy measured duel throbbing and thy beat convulsive, thy black cylindric body, golden brass and silvery steel, thy ponderous sidebars, parallel and connecting rods, gyrating, shuttling at thy sides, thy metrical, now swelling, pant and roar, now tapering in the distance, thy great protruding headlight fixed in front, 
the long, pale, floating vapor pennants tinged with delicate purple, the dense and murky clouds outbelching from thy smokestack, thy knitted frame, thy springs and valves, the tremulous twinkle of thy wheels, the train of cars behind, obedient, merrily following, through gale or calm, now swift, now slack, yet steadily careering. Type of the modern, emblem of motion and power, pulse of the continent, for once come serve the muse and merge in verse, even as here I see thee, with storm and buffeting gusts of wind and falling snow. By day thy warning ringing bell to sound its notes, by night thy silent signal lamps to swing. Fierce-throated beauty, roll through my chant with all thy lawless music, thy swinging lamps at night, thy piercing, madly-whistled laughter, thy echoes rumbling like an earthquake, rousing all. Law of thyself complete, thine own track firmly holding, no sweetness debonair of tearful harp or glib piano thine, thy trills of shrieks by rocks and hills returned, launch o'er the prairies wide, across the lakes to the free skies, unpent and glad and strong. Big difference, huh? A big difference, yes. Yeah. The image of the train in that one seems much fierce and strong, whereas I think you noted in this one, on the piece that I have, that it's uh, Dickinson's view is of it a very small thing. We hear about a pile of mountains and crawling around these things. It looks very small. Yeah. The, the yeah. vision is larger, maybe. And it ends at a stable, so it's some kind of little pony, perhaps. Yeah. But it's but it's toy-like, mm -hmm. isn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Whereas he sees the train up close, she sees it at a distance, so mm -hmm. it looks small to her, but he sees it huge. So there's nothing in view, at least nothing in detail, except the locomotive, the, the noisy, smelly, uh, powerful part. And he sees it huge, powerful, noisy, smoky, lawless, uh, these things were what people objected to, but Whitman makes them sound exciting. Mm -hmm. And uh, he admires the physically powerful and the unruly masculinity of trains, whereas she's she's more, yeah, I don't know, she looks at it with childlike eyes, I think. Do you, yeah. you agree? I do. And yet there's a sense in here, it, a little bit of a sense of threat in that this line that says something about pairing a query to fit its size sides, it seems like she is seeing it as as forming the landscape around it, which yeah. might be a threat to the people who yeah. were worried about what the railroads might do. Um, but yeah, it is a more manageable vision, I guess, of mm -hmm. what what it is happening. I think they're both they both mention the drawbacks, the mm -hmm. things that people objected to, but they make them seem more acceptable, maybe, mm -hmm. you know, more tolerable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, do you see this as a difference in gender? 
not necessarily. It seems like they they were such stylists that you can really see Dickinson's meticulous view of a small thing that she just does in a lot of her poems. It doesn't necessarily reflect her gender. And Whitman was always very um, exuberant in his lines and mm. whatnot. And it seems a, a matter of his style more than... What do you think? Well, of course, style very often comes from personality, and personality mm -hmm. comes from... I guess partly body chemistry, I guess, I, I don't know. But, uh, and I don't wanna try to make an airtight case for this, but uh, while Dickinson did write some poems for children like A Narrow Fellow in the Grass, uh, she didn't most of the time. She wrote poems that were for adults and mm -hmm. kids would not have understood them. Um, and, uh, I guess I can't say the thing about Whitman. He's always talking about the vast landscape of America and its industry. And mm -hmm. So it would be natural for him to write about the locomotive. But he says mm -hmm. uh, someplace, for once come serve the muse. That is, he sees this as the first poem ever written about trains. Hmm. They were contemporaries, so they were writing about the same time, but they were probably not reading one another. Right, right. Well, those are the pair that kind of spawned this idea for John about pairing poems. And from there, we, we seem to have um, picked one more that fit our theme, which was poetry. And we have a, a couple poems, one by Mark Strand and one by Marion Moore, about poetry. But then from there, it seemed like we just picked our favorite poems and th wondered whether some themes emerged that mm -hmm. were in common, which mm -hmm. was kind of an, an interesting process. But um, shall we move on to poetry? Let's do. Yeah. Shall I go first? Sure. Eating Poetry by Mark Strand. Ink runs from the corners of my mouth. There is no happiness like mine. I have been eating poetry. The librarian does not believe what she sees. Her eyes are sad, and she walks with her hands in her dress. The poems are gone. The light is dim. The dogs are on the basement stairs and coming up. Their eyeballs roll. Their blonde legs burn like brush. The poor librarian begins to stamp her feet and weep. She does not understand. When I get on my knees and lick her hand, she screams. I am a new man. I snarl at her and bark. I romp with joy in the bookish dark. Okay, now I, I'm going to feel like I'm reading from a textbook from Marianne Moore <laughs> after that. This is one of hers called Poetry. I, too, dislike it. There are things that are important beyond all this fiddle. Reading it, however, with a perfect contempt for it, one discovers in it, after all, a place for the genuine. Hands that can grasp, eyes that can dilate, hair that can rise if it must, these things are important, not because a high-sounding interpretation can be put upon them, but because they are useful. When they become so derivative as to become unintelligible, the same thing may be said for all of us, that we do not admire what we cannot understand. 
the bat holding on upside down or in quest of something to eat, elephants pushing, a wild horse taking a roll, a tireless wolf under a tree, the immovable critic twitching his skin like a horse that feels a flea, the baseball fan, the statistician, nor is it valid to discriminate against business documents and school books. All these phenomena are important. One must make a distinction, however. When dragged into prominence by half-poets, the result is not poetry, nor till the poets among us can be literalists of the imagination, above insolence and triviality, and can present for inspection imaginary gardens with real toads in them, shall we have it. In the meantime, if you demand on the one hand the raw material of poetry and all its rawness, and that which is on the other hand genuine, you are interested in poetry. I'd like to remember what some of those references are to. I think Imaginary Gardens is what, T.S. Eliot or? I think she made them up and, she, and the really? quotation marks are just her way of. I, I thought someone else had said that. Really? Yeah. And then literalists of the imagination, that seems like someone else too. Well, it may be, it yeah. may be, yeah. But they certainly fit in with what she's doing in this poem, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, I think so. How do you see that? Well, um, those are little taglines that we attach to poetry, I guess, and assume you know we have a vision for what poetry should do and whether it should adhere to a certain kind of um, formula uh, mm. and a, a certain expectation to it. And this poem, you know, it is formed. If you look at it on the page, you know, it does have regular stanzas and lines that are a certain length that are uh, repeated, that length. And yet reading it aloud, it just reads like almost a speech uh, mm -hmm. and almost like a bitter speech that she's um, reminding people that this is, you know, there's a lot involved in poetry that we don't take into account. Well, I take my <coughs> cue for this poem from the first line. I, too, dislike it, she writes. Mm -hmm. Two, in addition to whom? Mm -hmm. People who dislike poetry. Well, or she's referring, I mean, the, all this fiddle, I think, is referring to analysis of poetry, I think. And sometimes I think she's agreeing with the people who, who want to dissect it and disliking it. Yeah? That way. Yeah, maybe. I, I see it as defending poetry in general against the the scorn of literalists and pragmatists, people who want things to say what they mean clearly and not fiddle around with poetic phrases or with imagery or mm -hmm. s metaphors and similes. And so she, I think, assumes the persona of both the literalist and the pragmatist in order to disarm those opponents. Hmm. And so the tone is cool and rational. Here's literalist. There are things that are important beyond all this fiddle. Mm -hmm. um, and we do not admire what we cannot understand. That's the literalist speaking. Mm -hmm. And not till poets among us can be literalists of the imagination above insolence and triviality and can present for inspection imaginary gardens with real toads in them. Shall mm -hmm. we have it? Mm -hmm. 
I think she's she's that's that's a kind of slam against the modernists, maybe, hmm. but something. Hmm. Yeah. And then the the pragmatist is in uh, for the uh, discovers in poetry, after all, a place for the genuine hands that can grasp, and I think grasp there means both hold and understand. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they are useful. That's pragmatism. And uh, business documents and school books, pragmatism. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tone is cool and rational in this one, in contrast with what Strand does, Mark Strand does, in right. eating poetry, where it's anything. It's an opposite of both cool and rational. He's passionate about his enjoyment of poetry, and his joy in poetry brings his animal instincts, the dogs, up from the basement of the mind, you know, of the soul, mm-hmm. up to the surface. The dogs are on the basement stairs and coming up. Their eyeballs roll. Their blonde legs burn like brush. And then he he contrasts himself, or the speaker of the poem anyway, with the librarian. She does not understand when I get on my knees and lick her hand. She screams. Uh-huh. You know, it's not a matter of understanding for him. It's a matter of passion. I am a new man. I snarl at her and bark. I romp with joy in the bookish dark. He's, he's having a great experience, and she's really scared by it. Yeah, oh, that's mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. So is this a difference in sex, in gender? It seems the opposite to me from, from, our, from what we usually think of as mm-hmm. men being rational, women being emotional, right? right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when, I, when I met Mark Strand, I asked him about this poem, and he said he was in a card game, poker, I think, with a bunch of other men. And he suddenly got the idea for this poem, so he, he asked to be dealt out of the next hand, and he went to, off to a room by himself and wrote the poem and then came back and went back to playing cards. Yeah. So it was something that just hit him all of a sudden, you know. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if it had anything to do with the poet, the, the poker game, because in poker you have to have no emotions showing. Right, right. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know enough about these people personally to know whether it was intentional to assume maybe a, a distant persona to write these poems or whether these are um, consistent with some of their other work. You're more familiar with them. Marianne Moore writes like this a lot. Okay. Yeah, very uh, detailed um, and literal. Uh, but Mark Strand doesn't often write like this. This is, this is one of his exceptional poems. Hmm. Ink runs from the corners of my mouth. <laughs> Moving on from that, Passion for Poetry, the next couple were ones that we really liked, right? Yes. I mean, those those other ones just occurred and fitted kind of the theme, but uh-huh. now we're thinking about common themes that just emerged in our favorite poets' writing, and um, maybe we should just read the poems and talk about what the common theme is afterwards in the next two. Yeah, why don't you go ahead? Okay, the first one is... Uh, from Mary Oliver, and it's just the first poem from her collection, Thirst, which um, I love all of the poems in here. But And there's a, a consistent theme in most of these poems, but um, so it's hard to nail one down that would talk about what we're going to talk about. But um, 
I'll just read the first one. Messenger. 